What's up, everyone? Welcome to Destination Radio. It's me, boy Dan Evans, joined as ever by the boy Nathan Cush. Hey, Dan, you're right. I'm good, mate. Uh, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. I hope you all had a good uh, Christmas and New Year. Particular greetings to uh, those who tuned into our live event on Welsh Labour, the Banter Years. This is now available on Patreon, uh, so patreon.com slash forward slash Destination Radio. You can listen to that and listen to us actually get trolled by... Uh, <laughs> For the bargain price of 80p a month. Yeah, so yeah, sign up to Patreon and you know you get access to news rounds, discounts on merchandise and, and all the other good stuff. Uh, and you can listen to our live Christmas event. But as I said, thank you all for joining to uh, something that ended up running into, I think, about three hours, which... Yeah, it was... Uh... <laughs> well, I felt like running a marathon. I sort of like just fell asleep straight away. After. I started watching Apocalypse Now at the same time and like I almost did it twice uh, with the run yeah, time. Yeah, it was very, very heavy. Um, but yeah, so we're joined today... By a good friend and comrade, Dr. Paul O'Connell. Paul teaches law at School of <laughs> at SOAS. What does so, what does SOAS stand for again, Paul? It's the School of Oriental and African Studies. He's also, a, you know, a trade unionist, a socialist. He's act, active in the left campaign. Currently involved in you know campaigns to initiate politi- political education in Manchester, but with uh, plans we hear Paul to to go nationwide. Is yeah. it live? Yeah, so the, the Beehive is the, we, we've had in Manchester has been running for a year now and uh, very shortly we'll be launching the Political Education Project, which is a much uh, broader broader scale political education group. So yeah, keep an eye on that. It's on Twitter. Fantastic. Project. You can find it all there. Yeah, can't wait. And as we said earlier, very nice uh, graphic design on the Beehive in particular. Yeah, thanks um, for the lads at Gerald for that. So in, a, in the pre, one of our previous episodes, we, we introduced, you know, I guess, the Marxist perspective that has informed you know, most of our podcast, or it does inform all our thinking. And, you know, as we said, as Marxists, we can confidently predict what is coming from, you know, one year to the next, which is why, you know, our episodes are defined by sardonic detachment and boredom. Um, <laughs> so Paul, Paul is on now to basically to help us talk about what is going to come. What does the future hold? You know, we're not going to do a year in review. We're going to talk about what's happening, what's going to happen next. And um, hopefully then give you, the listener, some New Year's resolutions as well. So, Paul, did you have a nice Christmas and New Year's? I did. We've got a one-year-old baby, so every day is the same. How's he doing? Uh, very, very, very little sleep, lots of running around. Uh, and, yeah, it was good. It was quiet, you know what I mean? We sort of watched a bit, you know, the usual crappy Christmas films and switched off the email for a week, so that was nice. But back to the back to reality now, or whatever passes for reality these days. Yeah, back to the grind. So the years started off with a bit of a, bit of a bang. Protesters in America stormed the Capitol building in Washington uh, on the day the Congress was meeting to confirm uh, Joe Biden's emphatic glorious victory it had sort of a bit of a, a tragic comedy well, you know four people actually ended up dying one a woman got shot in the neck and by the guards and then died and then four, uh, three other people i think had, had like heart attacks and, and died it's a fairly incredible start to 2021 and one of the things you know we were talking about briefly off air and obviously the, the, the discourse has, has already started you know people are debating whether this is fascism whether trump is a fascist you know wh- you know what does this mean uh, obviously, the liberal galaxy brain takes her out immediately, like calling for the police to, you know, more authoritarian policing. You know, why aren't these people being killed? You know, they're terrorists. Um, they're fascist terrorists. This isn't America. Blah, blah, blah. You know, Biden was wheeled out to give this like completely moronic take. One of the best ones, we actually live streamed it on CNN. They were talking like this, you know, sort of rehabilitation of George W. Bush as this mm-hmm. statesman. And they, just, and they said George W. Bush lived through the Iraq war. I was like, yeah, no shit, he lived through it. Like, he started it. Yeah, so what, what's your take on all of it, Paul? Because um, it's a bit of a, it's obviously a bit of a minefield and it, it's a bit of a shock to the system. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's been it's interesting because I was just thinking as as everything was unfolding yesterday on social media, and I think the combination of the lockdown and social media and the way in which that compresses time and, and sort of everything seems to happen very quickly. I was just thinking to myself, there are people that still haven't taken their Christmas decorations down. This is this is I think we've already had this much happen. You know, it's been a uh, there was a German Marxist called Otto Ruhl, uh, and he had this idea. I, I can't remember the German term for it, but it was the idea of lightning history. You know what I mean? That there were periods of time where so much happened and so much was going on that you experienced it in this sort of you know and, and famously Lenin and Marx had this quote about years happening in days mm. you know what I mean and so forth so I think there's a lot being happening and with the American thing it is it's 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 interesting and it's scary I mean first of all it is a fascism I suppose at the minute I'd say it doesn't really matter um I think that I think that there are uh, archetypes for what we call fascism which mm. draw on the experiences of the early 20th century in Western Europe we're looking at so obviously Mussolini and then uh, Hitler and so forth and uh, there are some people who will draw up taxonomies of what that should look like. You know, do you have gangs in the street? Do you have an alliance with injury? Do you have these various other things going on? And of course, nothing's going to marry up exactly to that prior experience. It certainly is, um, to, to sort of borrow that well-worn phrase, it certainly is a very morbid symptom uh, of this period of, of capitalist crisis. Um, I don't know if it matters if we call it fascism right now, because mainly the term fasc fascism in modern discourse mainly operates just as a sort of pejorative. You know, people were calling George Bush uh, a fascist back in when he was uh, president, you know, before he was rehabilitated wow. and brought onto the Ellen show and made into this sort of affable, harmless survivor of the Iraq war. You know, people were calling him a fascist. So it just became this sort of, you know, pejorative. So I don't know if it matters whether we call it that or not. It's certainly... Um, noteworthy you know it's, it, the thing about fascism or in the past and whatever's happening now is that these aren't just bad ideas in bad people's heads you know what i mean these are symptoms of a deep structural crisis of capitalism that the capitalist class can find solutions to that working class people in different and incohate ways are looking for uh, answers to and in large part in britain and in america and elsewhere around the world because the left has failed to offer serious progressive alternatives uh, um, the right is coming up the snake oil salesman the trumps of the world farage bolsonaro whoever it is with easier answers that pin it on migrants pin it on uh, bme communities uh, and promise people a return to some sort of utopian past where they had secure jobs and you know affordable housing and that's, that's not going to happen because <laughs> it's not going to happen through capitalism it's not going to happen through any variant of reactionary nationalism um so yeah what's happened in america is it's it's terrible sad about that woman that's died and the others because again these are people that have been caught up in something bigger than themselves you know what i mean um i anybody who knows the sort of social statistics of america in terms of the levels of homeless homelessness the precarity the vast majority of working class americans are working more than one job the healthcare system is a shambles uh, secure accommodation is a thing of the past secure housing is a thing of the past the sort of opioid addictions and everything else that's going on. It's a, it's a country that is in decay. And of course, the working class are feeling that most. And these are the people that feed into Trump things. And again, sometimes there are certain... Um, I imagine they consider themselves clever sociologists. She'll say, oh, this is actually the petty bourgeoisie. Or this is the, and that's just, you know, it, it, that's sort of a, a sort of marketing understanding of what class is you know what i mean are you in the ab12 category are you in the c2de category but that doesn't really tell you much about class you know what i mean if these people whatever their sort of incomes were a couple of years ago i happen to be or if they do happen to own property that's now completely devalued the reality is the vast majority of the people that form the social base of this are people that work in one form or another and that work takes different forms across america and that should be 
a disgruntled, angry working class looking for an alternative should be the natural constituency of the left. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's not at the moment uh, because so much of that ground has been abdicated to the really. So I think it's um, interesting. I think it's, you know, it's certainly unusual, uh, but I think it augurs and speaks to a much deeper crisis of the political left and the deeper structural crisis of capitalism. On, um, on your recommendation, Paul, I read some of the Mike Davis stuff yeah. on Trump. And, um, and I actually started reading this one in Jacobin from 2017 by mistake, because I thought it was like a, it was a more contemporary one, but it was, it was fascinating because it was, it quite accurately predicts, you know, what's happened, like, you know, the entrenchment of basically like a permanent 40% who were hardcore Trump supporters, regardless of what happened. And, and then I was reading this, I think there's another one that's come out in New Left Review recently, um, mm-hmm. I don't have full access to that, but I was read <laughs> read the start of it. But um, you know, he talks about yeah, like you said, like almost this mad coalition of like new oil billionaires bankrolling, like you know, Trump and evangelical Christians. Obviously, there are huge amounts of like affluent middle class people. Yeah, yeah. It was into detail about like places like South Texas and I think it was like a place. It was uh, Erie in like Indiana and all these other places. So places which were once solidly, you know. Mm-hmm working class democrat areas have been permanently flipped now yeah. for republic you know hardcore republicanism and he says you know and he also talks obviously about the people who the working class uh, democrat vote who vote for obama in yeah. whenever it was and then he you know they went over to trump he said that has been over exaggerated but it's still you know close to probably about a million people yeah. Um, and yeah and how these countries you know as they got more immiserated they like you know they got more locked into this republican thing because of people you know because of presumably a feeling of abandonment and yeah i mean so you know you should read the you know everyone who's listening should read the mike davis stuff if you can because it's really fascinating but um his books are excellent too aren't they mm-hmm. yeah and i just you know, I sort of felt despair because you know obviously we we look at things through like a obviously a welsh prism and we had all of the welsh labor lot just like all the the new labor types have got this weird fetishization of like the democratic party in america mm-hmm and they stay up watching the, yeah. the action like yay come on joe biden blah blah, blah welsh labor mm-hmm. you and this is a victory for like you know mod you know sort of moderate social democracy or whatever with biden but like and then i was looking at this mike davis thing and like you know trump actually gained eight million more votes yeah um, he did i think in 2016 like the democrats have lost like i think the senate the judiciary you know there's absolutely you know biden is not going to be able to do anything even if mm-hmm. he wasn't aggressive as you said, Paul, the, the lady that got killed, I mean, I, I made quite a flippant comment about it on Twitter and I took it down after I saw the footage because it, it was generally, generally horrific. And um, and obviously people were saying, you know, she was a terrorist and so on. And then people started tweeting the things that she'd been tweeting about coming to storm the Capitol and so on. And then I clicked on one of them. And I looked at one of the videos she'd made and, you know, it starts off as like a, you think it's going to be like an insane like Infowars type thing. Yeah, I thought, you know, because, you know, because obviously her, you know, her politics had gone the completely the wrong way, eh? mm-hmm. being diverted into Trumpism and like ultra-nationalism and stuff. But, you know, she literally starts talking about the fentanyl problem, the levels of homelessness, and, you know, sort of the social decay that has hit, well, as you said, but all, not just America, but around the world. And I was like, she's, you know, she was right. It's like shit, you know, I, these, obviously these are legit, these are things which everyone should be outraged by and she was she was extremely angry and then unfortunately you know because that anger has been effectively funneled now into like the alt-right and called the left have sort of effectively abandoned that territory it just struck me as um as a sort of i don't know it was just incredibly tragic um and then 
people <laughs> saying, you know, her brain has been poisoned. I was like, well, absolutely, her brain has been poisoned for sure. Um, but then we were looking at some of the liberal takes. You know, you got Mark Hamill, like Luke Skywalker, saying like the work of Vladimir Putin. Um, and you think, well, no one's brain is more poisoned than liberals, really. And, and I think that if they think that this is going to be a return to normal, it, you know, the, the, then they got another thing coming because you know it hasn't been like this big defeat of Trumpism. No. If anything, you've just it's just completely solidified mm. and it's not going away now. And you know, Biden's not going to offer any progressive answers or anything like that so it's just like as you said it's sort of the contradictions and tensions that drove trump in the first place are just going to sort of deepen and accelerate but i don't know where they're going to go politically because mm-hmm. presumably he's just going to go back on tv yeah be getting impeached or go to jail or something like that but i think he might make his own news um outlet mm-hmm. i mean he'd do well to do it in a sense he's already got that kind of base that he can stir up Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, yeah, I mean, the, the, like the dark money, like, you know, the billions, like the Koch brothers and stuff, they're still going to be uh, funding something, you know, whether it's not Trump uh, or whatever. But um, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty heavy times. As we talked about just briefly off air, we'll move to the this. Well, this is my attempt at a segue. You know, I was going to say something. Um, I was going to say something like we've got our own Trump or Trump's mm-hmm. in the UK, Boris Johnson, but you know, whatever. But, you know, uh, but anyway, we'll move to the UK now because obviously, you know, there is obviously an international right connection between mm-hmm. your Boris Johnson's and your Trumps and as you said, the Farage and so on. One of the things that I've noticed is, is that at the start of the COVID crisis, well, you know, March, 2020, you know, myself and obviously most other activists were saying, you know, this is uh, socialism or barbarism. Mm-hmm. And this is it, you know, we, we, you choose, if we don't choose socialism, we're going to slide into fascism immediately. Um, then the sort of year started, everyone went back to work and you sort of, <laughs> You sort of get on with it. And you start weirdly doing that human thing of accommodating to, to whatever is going on. And then, as you said, something like the America thing jars you, and you think, "Oh no, you know, we're, it's still happening. You know, there's still we're still in this uh, horrible sort of interregnum yeah. where all these sort of symptoms are coming to the, the forefront." So, thinking about you know COVID in the UK, Paul. I mean, how would you characterize you know 2020 domestically and what's happened? Yeah, but just before before that COVID and the message, just say you're absolutely right about the links between Trump and Johnson, but not just that, but like it's it's a global trend and, and it's yeah. important to understand that because America's history of settler colonialism and reactionary uh, white nationalism isn't sufficient to explain Trump. Right, because you don't just have Trump. Long before Trump, you had Modi. You know what I mean? Uh, you had you had Erdogan. Uh, you had Duterte in in the Philippines. Then you have Bolsonaro. And now I'd say you could put Macron in there as well. And and all of these things are linked together in terms of being responses of the center and the right um, uh, to the crisis of capitalism, but then coloured by the specific histories of those countries. So in America, it takes on a particular um, dimension, a particular perspective. In France, you see the way in which they've uh, mobilised La Cite in a really sort of reactionary way to attack uh, the Muslim community, to really sort of legitimate Islamophobia and dress it up in this language of secularism and so forth. And so it takes on different different um, sort of specificities. And in the British context, obviously, then Brexit is part of that, you know, um, Brexit again isn't 
bad people like Farage and so forth getting what they want. Brexit is a product of the deep structural crisis of capitalism. You know, the thing is, is that 19.5 million people or whatever else who voted for Brexit uh, on the day, uh, they didn't do it because Putin paid for some ads on Facebook and they didn't do it because... Boris They're all Russian bots, I hear. Exactly. <laughs> and they didn't do it because Boris Johnson put £350 million on the side of a bus. They did it because they'd just gone through uh, the best part of a decade of austerity, of declining real wages, of, of insecurity in housing, of collapsing community infrastructure and everything else. And people are desperate for some sort of alternative. And again, it comes back to this important point, which is which is something that we all need to keep on reflecting on. Um, Samir Amin, who's an Egyptian Marxist, had this expression. He said, in the absence of progressive utopias, the dispossessed and marginalised of the world will turn to reactionary utopias. And again, we see this time and time again throughout history where the left is strong and offers a genuine alternative. It can attract these angry people into the ranks of the movement and mobilise them and, and bring about amazing things whether it's the Russian Revolution or whether it's, you know, uh, overthrowing dictators in Portugal or wherever it might be, you can, you, the left can do this and has done it historically. The problem is, is that the left was roundly defeated uh, in, in the sort of, depending on where you want to start the clock on it, but certainly by the time the 1980s came around, the left globally was in retreat across the board and neoliberalism was ascendant uh, and neoliberalism has shaped in very fundamental ways the landscape we're dealing with now which is a sort of moribund left uh, like historical social democracy has failed miserably and is now just a sort of uh, you know hollow sort of handmade to the sort of restoration of the status quo. Uh, the revolutionary left is fragmented and is is in a mess everywhere you look. I mean, there are exceptions to this. Bolivia and places like that provide positive examples. But in the West, certainly, uh, it's in three. And the really active, the really forward-looking political forces for the last 20 years have been the right. You mentioned the Koch brothers earlier. And again, these people did the deep organizing that the left wasn't doing. Now, they've got the great advantage that they're protecting the status quo. So they're already 10 points up before the game starts. You know what I mean? And they've got the money and the resources and they can get in there and fund university departments and set up all universities and set up media uh, enterprises and so forth and push these agendas. So this work has been done for years. So in Britain, obviously, we, we had Brexit, which completely dominated the politics for the last uh, four or five years, uh, and in a very unproductive way. Do you know what I mean? It just became this sort of childish pantomime, people shouting, remain or leave at each other. It became a, a sort of wedge to undermine the one speck of hope on the British political landscape, which was the Corbyn project, which completely hollowed out and undermined uh, by the liberal sort of embrace of a people's vote and so forth. Uh, and so by the time COVID comes around, the sort of British ruling class is exhausted on one level, but has also regained a bit of focus with the election of um, Johnson at the end of 2019, uh, with a bit of clarity around leaving the European Union and so forth. And so there's a degree of momentum going forward. But the problem then is that Britain, unlike many other countries uh, over the last 20 years, really embraced the sort of utopian rhetoric of rolling back the state. And so Britain has gutted its uh, civil service, has gutted the sort of institutional memory that was held in the past by senior civil servants, by local councils, by NHS trusts, has allowed and introduced in various private for-profit providers at all these different levels and created a massively dysfunctional system which isn't uh, well designed to meet the needs of a serious public health dilemma. And 
then also they've ingrained the ideology of it as well. So that when the crisis did hit, they look for market solutions to this absolutely dreadful public health pandemic. And so what the last year has shown, uh, which again, anybody who's a Marxist or a socialist knew, is that when it comes to protecting and flourishing uh, human life, the market uh, doesn't hold the answers, not by a long shot. Uh, and the Tories have shown that, but the problem is, is that the, particularly in the post-Corbyn era and with the sort of restoration regime and the Labour Party under, under Starmer, there's no opposition to the government. There's no serious opposition, except recently we've seen the NEU have mounted serious opposition to the government over returning to schools. But generally speaking, the government has had a free hand. Um, and because of the unprecedented nature of the pandemic, um, I think a lot of people have sort of kept their power dry and been uncertain as to how to respond. And so the government has gotten away with murder, quite literally, has gotten away with social murder. Britain has the highest death rate in, in Western Europe. And tens of thousands of those people wouldn't have needed to die. You know, people were obviously going to die in a public health pandemic of this scale. Um, but they've gotten away with murder. And the thing with it is, I think it's a combination of things. I think because they deal with it so incompetently, it lends itself to conspiracy theories. You know, people go, oh, well, look, of one minute they're saying this and now they're saying that so this is all because they're trying to manipulate us but I think actually it's just the contradictory class forces that they're trying to respond to so on the one hand there are the broad public demands to protect public health on the other hand there are different sections of capital so for example the eat out the help out was to help sort of smaller sections of capital the sort of uh, restaurant chain owners the uh, commercial property owners and so forth uh, but there are other sections of British capital that are flourishing even during the lockdown uh, and other sections of international capital Amazon being the most obvious example who are absolutely flourishing during the lockdown and they're trying to accommodate all those competing interests and as such they're making a mess of it um, and they're also callous I mean that's something else that just can't be forgotten about the Tories that they are callous murdering bastards by default you know what I mean and so, so their attitude to the deaths of tens of thousands of working class people is sort of you know what was that old thing attributed to Stalin? The death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a couple of thousand is a statistic. You know what I mean? And, then, and that's sort of their attitude in a way. They're, they know it won't be their people that die. You know what I mean? It won't be, there was that moment when Johnson had it and that sort of made it, well, we'll just humanise him. No, it won't. He'll come out the other side of it, the exact same person, driven by the exact same class interests and the exact same calculus. So Britain has, you know, we the working class in Britain has suffered immensely under this crisis. Um, the like the rest of the world, we've seen a massive uh, upward transfer of wealth. Uh, the billionaires in Britain have increased their wealth by twenty four percent, I think it was, over the last year. Um, while other people have been furloughed on pennies, you know what I mean, and and and, and then lots of others not even getting furloughed. Um, and the government refusing until they were forced into giving free school meals to kids. So. What the crisis has done, if anything, in a progressive sense, is it has clarified things. You, you said socialism or barbarism. It's given us a glimpse of what that barbarism looks like. And that barbarism is very small numbers of wealthy, well-connected people living comfortably and protected, while the vast majority are scrounging around in food banks and everything else just to make ends meet. And we're seeing tens of thousands of, of sort of unnecessary debts. Um, so yeah, that's on the COVID side of it. But in that sense, also... Most other countries have dealt with it badly. The British government has dealt with it especially badly. And I think there are, again, specific reasons around that. I was looking at the cases the other day and like, you know, yeah, it is interesting that, as you said, all governments have dealt with it badly because, you know, all governments, are, you know, in the West are, are capitalistic and um, and profit comes first. But yeah, as you said, there is a noticeable uptick in, you know, noticeable difference in the US and the UK because obviously they're the, the countries that embrace neoliberalism yeah. 
purest form the most. And I should say to people as well, if you, know, if you go back and listen to our uh, the second wave of COVID podcast with Dan Howden, you know, like yourself, Paul, you know, he, he says, you know, the, you, this crisis can't be detached from austerity or the privatization of care and so on and so forth. We are in a crisis, obviously. Um, and as you said, it has clarified things. Speaking personally, like at the start of the crisis, it was, okay, this is it. There's going to be some form of showdown. This, we were at a crossroads. One of the things that, I don't know, like an idiot, I got my hopes up. I don't know, I don't know why. I mean, we spent the first few, first month, a bunch of us, you know, trying to mobilise like the trade union, yeah. uh, trade unions that we're involved in in Wales. Well, we did speak about Starmer briefly then, and like the fact there's no opposition. And I, we'll come on to Starmer as an easy target in a way. What I've noticed is that, you know, this was a period of unprecedented uh, leverage, unprecedented for the for the union movement in the UK in a way, you know, obviously it was, as you said, it was decimated in 84, the miners' strike hasn't really recovered since then and, and repressive union laws have come into play, which obviously limit the ability of trade unions to organise. But nonetheless, in a period where everyone can see that, you know, key workers, working class people keep, keep society taken over, if there was ever a period to call for either a general strike or to put pressure on the government for pay rises and stuff like that. It was now, but they literally, what, what else are they going to do? You know, um, they said, we read, you know, you read Marxism and you read like Miliband and stuff like that about the nature of the British trade union movement. But it, it always is jarring to see how sort of supine and, and docile they are. And we, you've gone into this period and, and maybe I'm naive, but I thought, you know, you could have come out with, could have come out of this year strength in a stronger position. Instead, we've come out of this year where barely anything's changed. There's still a permanent Tory majority because I haven't won any additional rights other than getting clapped. So, how do you characterize or what's your take on, like, you know, I guess the, the response of the union movement in particular to, to this crisis? Because, well, as a trade unionist and as someone who's been working throughout it, you know, it's just been, even with my low expectations, it's been abysmal. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I think you're right. I think it has been abysmal. Uh, I think there have been some minor exceptions. I think, obviously, the very recent... Yeah, lately with ANU. Is, ...is one good example. But you're right. I mean, I think, again, it just has to be understood in the in the historical context. Because, again, it, it's interesting what you said there about expecting that there'd be a showdown. And I completely get that. And, 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 I, and I felt the same myself. And I wanted it to be that myself. And interesting, this was one of the sort of... Um, presuppositions or one of the assumptions of the second international uh, sort of communists and socialists in the late 19th and early 20th century. The idea was that the crisis will get so bad, the sort of objective conditions will bite so hard that the people will snap back and then the conditions will be ripe for revolution and, you know, off we go. And of course that never happened. And a large part of Gramsci's prison notebooks is just trying to understand that. He's trying to figure out, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> We've had a world war and the Great Depression and the rise of fascism and now we're heading towards another war and this still hasn't happened why hasn't this why hasn't it worked out and the reality is is that beaten people generally don't sort of rise up do you know what I mean like I mean beaten as in kicked you know what I mean people who are convinced that there is no alternative that this is the best that you can hope for that it's absolutely I mean people might talk, be familiar with sort of um, Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism but Mark said the same thing in capital you know what I mean that capitalism produces not just things for exchange and so forth but produces people people that come to see the existing order of things as inevitable and, and as being no alternative to it and we have, as a class, uh, globally, for the most part, been on the back foot 
Uh, I mean, you could go back a little forward or some people start the clock with the defeat of the German Revolution and the Mm -hmm. execution of Rosa Luxemburg. So depending on when you want to start the clock, but certainly for the last 40 years, we've been on the back foot. And when it comes to trade unions, trade unions in Britain, but right across Europe have been co-opted. You know what I mean? So so trade union density has collapsed in Britain. Now, there's been an increase again in the last year, but it's very modest. You know, if you went back to the late 60s, early 70s, the number of people in trade unions is more than double what it is now. You know what I mean? So trade unionism was a much bigger social force mm-hmm. um, and there was also much more a much stronger tradition of rank and file militancy in trade unions in the 60s and 70s i can't remember the exact number uh sheila robotham i think it is in her book bulwarks of bulwarks of freedom so i'm sleep deprived of the baby so i don't remember the name all right i'll think of it but um she she has a statistic that in the late 60s in britain uh 80 of industrial action was unlawful industrial action it was it was sort of unofficial strikes and so forth mm. it was just this working class militancy that was built yeah. in rank and file organization that's been whittled away over the last 40 years for, for a whole variety of reasons. The EU played a big part in it. So, so the EU, uh, sort of at a European level, the EU Confederacy, uh, Confederation of Trade Unions, and the way in which it was co-opted into the policy-making processes mm-hmm. to a very limited degree within the EU, the bureaucratic structures that Miliband discusses within trade unionism, the sort of reformist tendency trade, all of those things were existing and then compounded by 40 years of defeat of the collapse of traditional uh, industries right across Britain. So again, you, you lads are from Wales, you will know obviously the coal fields that were destroyed, but also the industrial centres across the north of England and elsewhere that were destroyed, those stable communities and workplaces that you had around that where people had a shared sense of collective agency, all declined over the last 40 years. The problem is that by the time this crisis comes along, not only do we have that 40 year baggage, but we also have the very recent defeat of the one very modest possibility of an alternative we had in the Corbyn project. You know what I mean? That was roundly defeated in the election in 2019. So everybody came into 2020 demoralized. Uh, the left, the politically active left, demoralized. The wider strata of working class people that might have voted for Corbyn demoralized and sort of locked back into, oh, well, here we are. It's the Tories again. At least Boris will get Brexit done and we can move on. So that's the position we're in before COVID comes along. So as much as I would love the unions to be more, I would, so when when it happened, I'm in UCU. Uh, I tried to mobilize and, and worked with others to try and mobilize my union because there was that brief moment around March or April when the government was printing money hand over fist. And it was this sort of little ruptural chink in the armor uh, yeah. where you could sort of say, well, look, the old rules don't apply. And my argument then was right now, let's demand the abolition of tuition fees, the abolition of student debt, uh, a sort of funding of higher, higher education directly from uh, public funds uh, as an essential public service and a convention led by students and staff on the future of higher education. And there was not, we, we, we organized a petition and got a couple of hundred people to sign it, but we couldn't build a campaign around it because of the lockdown. And it was, it became hard to really move it forward. So the union didn't really move on it, but and, and no unions really mobilized with the exception of the NEU. Um, yeah. They were very hard pressed even the medical unions have been very very sort of supine in the middle of all this i think part of that then is the very complicated um cultural aspect that comes with working in a sector like that because nurses yeah. and doctors have such a strong sense of obligation uh, and that's used against them it's used against exactly. them by it's used against them by nhs trusts who know that they the type of people that do those jobs will go over and above and put themselves at risk and and not want to compromise the well-being of others 
so yeah, I think we're in a we're in a position right now where we're having to do a massive rebuild uh, of the trade unions from the ground up. You know, again, you even look at what the Labour Party you mentioned, Stammer, We'll probably come back to it later, but the absolute contempt they've showed for the trade unions, and the most we've seen so far is Unite withdrawing a little bit of funding from them, and the Bakers Union is consulting their members about possibly disaffiliating. But generally speaking, because of this, again, forty years of defeat, the unions want to hold on to what very limited levers of influence they think they have so they won't break with the Labour Party they'll keep supplying it with staff and funds and so forth and keep locked into that narrow reformist strategy that's linked to being involved with Labour so there is certainly hope I mean you look at um, the IWGB for example they've done some really good actions with migrant workers uh, in universities and other uh, places around London um, but they're still a very small union but they definitely give an indication of uh, they, they sort of reinforce time and time again that old idea that if we fight we win yeah <laughs> uh, or if we, if we you know if we don't fight we'll never win but if we do fight sometimes we will win and they they show it after their actions so i think there might be a resurgence of of trade union militancy at a grassroots level um but we have to do an awful lot more serious organizing around it it won't it won't happen just because things are shit you know what i mean it, it, people can accommodate themselves to mountains of shit you know what i mean people can rationalize it and make a virtue of it and sort of get along with it um it's only if we start to build and organize and show that there are possible alternatives uh, and some of that in the medium term might be just winning very modest reformist uh, changes uh, just to sort of show a reprieve or show a limited sort of victory but that's important you know what I mean? we mentioned america earlier and we discussed america in america you don't get the black panthers if you haven't had the civil rights movement you know i mean you don't get a confident working class organization looking for fundamental social change until you've had that more modest reformist group that's won limited gains and giving people a sense of what it means to win and what it's like to win and build their confidence so i think we're in a serious period of rebuilding and the problem is we're in a serious period of rebuilding when we're under fire from all sides as a class um so it's it's not ideal circumstances but then it never is <laughs> when uh, it's interesting paul you talk about you know the decline of trade union militancy being you know being partly facilitated by the eu co-opting you know the trade union move across you know into this decision-making process, you know, the social Europe and all that yeah. bollocks. Um, because, you know, one of the things we've been sort of railing against on this podcast is, you know, in Wales through this thing called, the, you know, we've got a Labour government, you know, and there's this thing called the Social Partnership Act, which is basically, for people who aren't from Wales, what this is essentially is a full integration of the trade union movement into an arm of the Welsh government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's been, you know, the, the efficiency of that in terms of workers' rights has been demonstrated right the way throughout the pandemic where we're trying to put pressure on the top of the trade union movement to, you know, because you know, there are literally, you know, members actually dying, you know, and obviously there are instinct of these people who are at the top of the trade union movement who will be integrated into the, you know, through their links and Labour Party and you now integrated into the Welsh government. Their instincts are, you know, like, don't rock the boat, we'll speak to Mark, he's trying his best. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this inc- incredibly uh, awfully damaging um phenomena that mm. we've been trying you know trying to make people realize that this is this is not really good this is this is a terrible thing and obviously it's wheeled out well in the england you know they've got these trade union laws where you, you know they're all really damaging but in wales you've got a social partnership um and you know i've had it you know been told reliably that this because of the nature you know the inchoate nature of the welsh government this social partnership act has basically been drafted by wales tuc in partnership with the cbi mm-hmm 
which you know, and and it's kind of this, it's kind of like emblematic of this very Welsh version of neoliberalism, you know, um, you know, the, the Welsh way. You know, there's no tension around capital. We're all friends, but what it is essentially is a no strike agreement, yeah. um, which is being going to be used by the Welsh government and the CBI to attract in with investment to say, list, you know, we've got this fantastic thing, the social partnership where you have to recognize trade unions, um, but in return, you'll get like this completely docile, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, workforce. Uh, and that's just, you know, the, the, the COVID crisis has really sort of, well, for me, just reinforced how utterly just sort of devastating this, this is, and how, how much it will be. And and because, you know, even the, you, it, you know, it, it sort of makes like the NEU stuff recently, there's always movement. There's more movement now from the unions, as pathetic as they are in England. Um, far more, bef- you know, it's always faster than the, the you know, TUC. Cymru doesn't say anything. Unison Wales don't say anything because they don't want to upset the Welsh government. They don't want to embarrass the Welsh government. They're made because they don't want to lose influence and so on and so forth. But yeah, from our perspective, that's certainly something that we're going to be trying to, and we're going to do it, but try to alert people to. Um, benefits of, of smaller sort of fighting unions hopefully that is the future we have mentioned brexit do you start left i helped set it up yeah, I, yeah so you I, helped set up left you know the sort of movement for sort of like a people is essentially like a people's left exit from yeah uh, the eu like obviously you said before you don't like a term lexit i don't mm-hmm. term lexit i guess following on from our marxist podcast you know what i would say that you know, for a marxist how you approach the EU is sort of for me sums up what it meant to be a Marxist. Yeah. I'm not going to get sucked, you know, if I'm a Marxist, I'm not going to spend my time and dewy eyed and, and yeah. nostalgic about something that is clearly a, a you know, a, a capitalist neoliberal institution. And that was for me probably one of the differences between a Marxist approach and a liberal approach to understand. Yeah. Um, You're not Paul Mason, are you? No, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but a bit, it's, it's funny because obviously, you know, that's, you know, the deal has been done. Mm. The, is leaving from what i understand the deal is not as as good as as may's deal that was on was on offering what two years ago mm-hmm. um and you know funny enough uh, there has been like chaos at the ports albeit mm-hmm. that related to covid rather than anything maybe it's time me and you paul to sort of reflect on um you know because you know because even now that you know people keep saying how's lexic going you know and yeah. There's occasionally you get digs like are you as if like you know I've we've we've caused all this. What are your thoughts on you know not just the deal but like you know the the, the exit and, and and how it's all gone? Yeah, so I think the the thing with Brexit is I should I should say and I, and I spent the best part of um, five years I suppose uh, working on different aspects of Brexit and and the first thing I'd say is I would have rather do almost anything else. You know what I mean? It was it was. Um, if it was being on it, so so I was living in Leicester when it when when the referendum was forced called, uh, and I'd been involved in in anti racism campaigns there and anti austerity campaigns, and we were building, we were doing good work there. The the BNP came and tried to march through Leicester, and we outnumbered them about sort of sixty to one, or so. It was a pitiful, like you know, what I mean, I almost I almost felt sorry for them. Uh, but so we, we were we were doing those sorts of things and and very necessary anti austerity work. Um, Leicester's a great little town, but but sort of very deprived as well because again one of those towns where the old you know, the old industries have completely vanished and there's now actually um, sweatshops in Leicester now because mm-hmm. of the levels of sort of poverty and exploitation of migrant workers and so forth so we, I was more concerned with that and more interested in that now, the thing is is that once once David Cameron called the referendum on membership of the European Union once that became 
a, a discussion point then exactly as you said as as socialists as marxists you have to respond to that as a marxist right so again i, I didn't want to have a discussion about the eu but when we're going to do it then we do it as socialists and marxists and then that brings in these questions of the uh, balance of forces within society the nature of capitalists so i said the nature of crisis that we were going through uh, and a class analysis of the political uh, conjuncture and as you said that was just lacking completely across the board from from the sort of majority of the british left i mean very few exceptions but the majority of the british left responded to it fundamentally as liberals and the, the basic logic was the vote for Brexit has been called by people who are racists and it advances racism and therefore it's just all about racism that's the end of it and again going back to what I said about Trump earlier the American history of racism and settler colonialism isn't sufficient to explain Trump in the same way racism and anti-migrant sentiment isn't sufficient to explain Brexit in the British context. Because um, again, Brexit, and we've mentioned Corbyn a few times, Brexit and Corbyn are inextricably linked. You know what I mean? There are two moments in a particular uh, crisis in British society and, and British capitalism where people are looking for alternatives. And one of them is, you know, ostensibly progressive and positive with the Corbyn thing, and the other one is seen to be reactionary. Now, the thing is that my position on it from the outset was where we had to say, well, what's the question? And the question was, do we want to leave the European Union? And if you're going to answer that question, then you have to know what the European Union is. And it's amazing how little the British understand the European Union, uh, whether they're leavers or remainers. The amount of sort of um, fanciful sort of, you know, idealised versions of the European Union as this peace project, as this sort of, uh, you know... It was, uh, it was a giant farmer's market, wasn't it? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> free travel. Exactly, yeah. With, but every type of cheese you could imagine and, <laughs> uh, and sort of free movement for all who have full wallets. You know what I mean? That's basically what it was about. Uh, so the first question then was, what's the EU and how does that relate then to the politics of, of working class socialism? And if you have even the most rudimentary understanding of the history of the European Union and of the constitutional architecture of the European Union, then you understand that it's fundamentally incompatible with the pursuit of any meaningful radical socialism but even modest social democracy you know again again there's a whole set of arguments about not just state aid rules but, but also the competition rules and the semester process where the european union uh, oversees the sort of macroeconomic uh, forecasting of member states and so forth and all of these things over the last 20 years in europe have put concretely downward pressure on the protection of workers rights on workers wages there's a wealth of literature out there what's interesting is lots of um pseudo-critical academics and academia was a particular sort of black hole when it came to this debate lots of pseudo-radical academics uh, had written critical stuff about the eu for years there was lots of stuff about the democratic deficit in the european union the turn to authoritarian liberalism in the european union all of this stuff was there all the criticisms of their fortress europe it's it's innate structural racism but then there's the sort of question was posed and they all pissed the bed you know what i mean they all went, oh well there's bad people bad people want us to leave and we want to stay in there because again their class interests are aligned with the interests of sort of transnational capital and the particular sort of cultural associations that go with being a so-called European, uh, which obviously for them doesn't include Russia and the rest of Eastern Europe and so forth. It's uh, mainly just Paris, Milan and London, I assume. Um, so that Also get a bathroom uh, fitted for cheaper, can't they? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's going to fix all their things now? <laughs> uh, so the, thing, the question then was, what's the nature of the European Union? So you ask that question. 
but then the second question was, well, how does that relate to politics within Britain, right? And the politics within Britain was that we were in a deep crisis. And Corbyn, again, was another reflection of that. And people were, working class people in Britain were looking for alternatives. This goes back to what we were saying earlier at the start about the recent events in the US and the Trump moment. Now, the thing is, is you can present yourself as somebody who's opposed to the status quo as somebody who is supporting people and developing a politics of fundamental rupture while also cleaving to a transnational organization that fundamentally constitutionalizes the status quo and this is what actually happened in the last election in 2019 corbyn and co were coming along saying we'll give you free broadband and we'll do all these things and we'll make everything better for you um but on that key constitutional question the one thing you've had to say on the last 20 years we're not actually going to go along with that and then you're not trusted you're not seen as authentic and genuine and committed to the sort of radical politics that you claim to represent so from the outset i've never used the term legzip because i just think it's a nonsense evasive term i don't use it for the same reason i don't use the term leftist you know what i mean i think these are just mm. evasive nothings that conceal any real politics uh, i've always made what i consider to be the principal socialist case for leaving the european union which was based on anti-racism which was based on building independent working class uh, organization and developing serious uh, left-wing politics the thing with that is is that if i have any regrets about the whole thing i regret that we didn't do it more coherently and more consistently from an earlier stage so we set up the left campaign in 2018, I think, or late, two, yeah, 2018, early 2018. Uh, and in that, by, by that point in time, the horse had bolted in terms of the Labour mm. Party and the trajectory it was taken. The, the biggest sort of extra parliamentary uh, campaign in Britain at that point in time was the people's voting, which was a completely confected, you know, elite led um, AstroTorf campaign but which had a social base in um, the sort of reactionary middle classes. Uh, it's interesting when people talk about fascism, and again, I think the term is used far too loosely, but if I was concerned about fascism in Britain, the social base for it would be in those people you saw on those people's vote marches, the ones who sort of, you know, petty bourgeoisie, property owners, pining for a return to the Olympic Open ceremony, uh, a view that certain people shouldn't be allowed to vote because they're too thick or too ignorant, the casual racism that goes along with how they view the rest of the world. If I was concerned about fascism they'd be the ones i'd be looking at so i think that we should have had a much more coherent campaign around the articulating the uh, principled socialist case for leaving the european union uh, but we didn't and again we, we you know we, we didn't have the resources of the funds that groups like another europe as possible uh, were given we didn't have the access to the media that they were given you know because they were preaching the gospel of the sort of um reactionary middle classes so they got that access you didn't uh, get your own family we didn't. It's going to be new, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> God, uh, I don't. I think I, I think I lack the self confidence to pull that one off. <laughs> we had um, uh, one of the things I've noticed is that you know, speaking personally, I I have you know I I consider myself a fairly confident um, person with strong beliefs, but you know it is difficult to be like assailed from all sides and just being told like this is what you've brought about and and so on and, and like I've definitely found myself. If someone uses an emotive argument, like, you know, we're not going to get medicines made and people are going to die of this because of, you know, leaving the EU, and you start to think, well, shit, you know, it's natural, isn't it, to be like, am I, am I somehow complicit in this? I found that I've struggled with that the last few weeks, but then you think, well, no, actually, it's complete bollocks. But um, what do you think about the, the deal, Paul? Or- I think it's a it's a terrible deal. Um, I, I think that, well, so I think there's two things with it. I think there was absolutely no deal that would have been better 
and I, I do that in sort of air quotes. Yeah. No deal that would have been better than remaining in the European Union, right? Now, if yeah. if access to markets is what's important, if that's what you're exactly, concerned yeah. there was no deal better than remaining in the European Union. But this deal itself um, gives away so much ground uh, in terms of the level playing field, in terms of uh, anticipating uh, controls and state aid, uh, in terms of setting up adjudication mechanisms to allow uh, the EU to enforce these rules against uh, any British uh, government and so forth. But again, the key thing is with Brexit, and this is another reason why I never used the term Lexa, um because the idea of Lexit and even of Brexit is that it implies it as an event uh, rather than mm. a process. It implies that Lexit happens or Brexit happens. Yeah. Then the thing is done. But it's an ongoing uh, contest. And then again, much like um, much like the sort of COVID crisis in a way, the one, the one thing that's definitely happened post-Brexit is again, that sort of clarification of the stakes of things. You know, there's no Tory government or no Tory minister can now say, oh, well, we don't want to do this, but our hands are tied by, yeah. you know, the, this, is, this is very much now we're confronting them in open terrain with a very clear idea of who's doing what. The deal, the deal is abysmal, but the deal can be renewed or sorry, not reviewed rather in five years' time. Uh, and the battle now is about trying to push for again the relaxation of these state aid rules, the articulation, which again, me, myself and Michael Calderbank wrote a piece in 2016. 2016, early 2000, before the forced Corbyn election. And we wrote a piece basically saying that if the left articulates a positive vision of what a post-Brexit Britain can look like, it can overcome these divisions around various other issues and build a, a sort of social force. And that was actually vindicated in how Corbyn and Labour did in that election, because that was that moment where people were looking for this alternative. The problem is then is we had four years after that, or three years at least, of people just again in this reactionary liberal way pointing for the past, constantly trying to over, overturn the election result, trying to go back to a sort of, you know, Blair Blairite era of rising house prices and, and sort of relative um, you know, stability for certain sections of society, not for the working classes primarily, but of course that, that's not what's important to them. So I think that we now have to fight still, and this, this hasn't changed for the last five, six, ten years, we have to fight for a socialist vision of what Britain should look like, of what Wales should look like, what Scotland should look like. We have to fight for that and we have to organise around that. And going back to what you said about the trade union stuff, we definitely have to, in Wales, for example, I grew up in Ireland when social partnership was the prevalent paradigm. We absolutely have to be fighting that. You know, I remember I was 16, 15, 16, forced getting involved in this and I'm going, how can you be partners with someone who's literally picking your pocket? How will we partners in this you know what i mean like, the, like, like the, the whole basis of their wealth is their work how are we partners and then the interesting thing in ireland was that consolidated in ireland for years and the exact same thing completely defanged the trade union movement but then when the crisis hit in 2008 uh the, it was the employers who would have forced to break all the social partnership rules <laughs> like, oh yeah screw that you know, all the yeah. agreements we had all these gentlemen's agreements we had out the window and um, so we definitely have to be fighting to break with that to build militant trade unions to be doing political education to build political formations outside of labor and, and sort of have people articulating what they think social policy look like so that doesn't change and that also relates to the deal as well you know there's good work people like um joe glennon and that and the democracy collaborative have done stuff on community wealth building and various other things we need to be pushing those models which will come into conflict with aspects of this agreement but then we need to be challenging them we need to say okay well if the agreement doesn't allow it we're not having that agreement um and again this is a long-term thing and it's a long-term process so things haven't changed in that sense yeah and i think um the, one of the problems i had with you know being you know being called this like lexit or whatever was try, try, as if people thought that you know we're not saying 
you know, by describing the class character of the EU or making a principal case for leaving, um, we're not saying that like immediately there's going to be, you, you know, that leaving the EU was going to make the left stronger in the UK or or mm-hmm. or, or create, uh, you know, conditions that are going to be immediately more conducive to socialism in the UK. Obviously, that's not what we're saying at all. Um, and I think those things are confused, aren't they? People, you know, people were thinking that we were saying like, oh, we leave immediately, things are going to get better for everyone and like when, I don't know I just, it, it should be quite exhausting trying to explain that it's a straw man you know what I mean it's a, it's a yeah. cartoonish straw man argument and that, that for me anyway certainly how I've approached and I know how you've approached it is the position I had had the great merit of honesty you know I didn't have to lie about anything I didn't have to say yeah we leave and everything will be better the, the fight carries on so the left campaign what that stood for was leave fight transform you know what I mean that, that's what the campaign was about because again it was about a process it was about building it was about constantly fighting for it whereas if if you're a so-called socialist who support Remain and so forth, you have to lie. You have to say it's possible to reform the European Union. It's not. So either you're lying or you're very stupid, and neither of them are good things uh, politically. You know what I mean? Uh, if, you, if you're saying, if you're a left socialist arguing for Remain, you're having to sort of buy into this nonsense about Europe being the guarant- the EU, rather, being the guarantor of human rights and the guarantor of war, when it's simply not the case. So you have to be dishonest in order to hold those positions. Uh, so the virtue of, of sort of supporting the leave the, the, the position that I articulated in you and others was that we could be honest about it. There was no guarantees at all about what would come on the other side of it. Uh, but what there was was the possibility and also the obligation, I'd say, to articulate consistent and coherent socialist and Marxist principles on how we approach our politics. And you can't, you can't half arse it with people because even if people haven't had the political education and, and are sort of not as au fait with all of these treaties and various things as, as some of us might be, people know when you're bullshitting them. You know I mean? And if you're going to people saying, we're going to change the world, we're going to transform everything, we can't do this one thing here and we can't do that and we're hemmed in by this. And that's the interesting thing is that most of the arguments against leaving from the left are arguments against socialism full stop. You know what I mean? Oh well, capital will go on strike. Of course they will. Yeah, they yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> sort of sit around and sort of pat us on the head and, and congratulate us on what we're doing. The idea that you can have this sort of seamless, you know, I mean, effortless transition to some green new deal, fully automated luxury communism, universal basic income, fantasy nonsense. Like, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't have that. You can't do that. It's it's about struggle, but it's about actually doing the the sort of day to day struggle and doing it consistently. Um, but yeah, in terms of the the so called legs of stuff, it's just a straw man. Man, do you know what I mean? It's um, it's like Schrodinger's political tendency. You know what I mean? One and the same time, completely irrelevant, but also the cause of trucks being backed up by Calais <laughs> at Dover and Calais. So I just I don't buy into it. It's 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 disingenuous and it's sort of um, tedious. You know what I mean? And if anybody in this day and age is still saying how's legs are gone, they just need to get out and have a walk and sort of do something better with their lives. <laughs> I think um, one of the you know the most probably the most accurate description of um, you know the catalyst for Brexit that you know there, there was a divide in the British ruling class mm-hmm. within British capital um, you know with what's happening Brexit with COVID and obviously you said you, know, you mentioned earlier Paul that obviously the the British ruling class's response has been completely uh, seems insane insanely incoherent because they're responding to the different sort of fractions of capital that pull them in different directions how would you sort of characterize it it now like you know is there one form or tendency that seems to be dominant or yeah how, how, how do you look at the, the the ruling class of britain at the moment i think it's still i mean so so um 
Bob Jessup has a has a good um, a two good articles from a year or two ago on sort of the organic crisis of the British state and what and what this reflected and and de- these are again deep seated deep seated tendencies that have developed over the last twenty years going back to from everything to the sort of MPs expenses scandal to the lies about the war of Iraq the complete loss of legitimacy and and trust in the political establishment then the sort of material decline of British industry uh, and the sort of eroding uh, circumstances of most British working class people. So all these things have been building up, you know, for, for, for years now. And at this point in time, I think that interestingly, so so I think within within British capital, there are still tensions. You know, obviously the this one thing about this deal, interestingly, is that it seems to have particularly adversely affected finance capital uh, in the city of London. Uh, and so I think that's significant. Uh, but I actually think that even before COVID happened, I think a section of the British ruling class has understood that because uh, British capital has stagnated in in certain key respects for the last 20 years, that it was going to be necessary to engage in a serious program of right-wing Keynesianism in order to sort of reflate the British capital, in order to make British capital competitive on the international scene. And that's also part of the background context for Brexit. The understanding that, you know, if you if you look at, for example, the World Trade Organization talks have been stalled now for the best part of 15 years, and the sort of system of multilateral uh, trade and negotiations is, is faltering and teetering in certain key respects. So we're seeing a lot of these new mega regional trade deals like CETA and TTIP and so forth, and lots of bilateral deals. And a section of British capital understands that we're moving to a position of not deglobalization, but a different form of globalized uh, capitalism where um, states intervening and having national champions in certain industries and so forth are crucial. So I think that um, there will be uh, massive investment in Britain in certain sectors uh, of industry uh, and in certain regions. I think the Tories in their own way are serious about the levelling up that they talk about. Uh, they will invest in cities and regions outside of London, um, A, for electoral reasons, but B, or rather A, for sort of deep-seated economic reasons, B, for electoral reasons. I think there will be that investment. And I think that the British ruling class now um, is actually a bit more coherent as a class in its own right than it has been for the last few years. I think they, once Johnson won leadership of the Conservative Party, I think the those sections of the British ruling class that were pushing for Remain and funding these various campaigns made their peace with leaving and then it became about the best form of leaving from their perspective. So I think there's a degree of recomposition in terms of the British ruling class. Uh, and I think they're in a better position coming into this crisis than we are in the working class because we're so fragmented uh, materially, but then also ideologically, all these divisions around so-called identity politics and uh, culture wars and everything else. There's so many divisions now in the working class as we enter into this crisis. And I think that, you know, if we're looking at the balance sheet of things, capital in Britain is in a better position than we are, but then that's usually been the case. Uh, and so the question now is just going to take stock of that get ourselves together, recompose ourselves as a class, build these organisations we've been talking about and start taking the fight to them, uh, which is a long-term project, obviously. Well, you mentioned Gramsci earlier, Paul, and when I was doing some reading about Gramsci and crisis, like, again, early on, early on, it seems like, you know, a lifetime ago, the start of COVID and, and thinking yeah. about, um, and, uh, you know, as he always says, is, you know, there was this tendency on the left at the time to think that the crisis is always going to usher in like a working class revolution, or as you said, people are going to snap and rise up. But obviously what he says is that, you know, well, crisis can be resolved. Um, 
is they get resolved is, is, is fascism. Um, and, you know, as you said, you've always got ruling class elements attempting to, like, cure the, the problems that sort of drove the crisis in the first place, you know, like, the, or, you know, economically, I guess, you know, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and so on. Um, does it, you know, from one perspective then, could what you're saying, are we seeing basically the, the, the crisis is being sort of cured? You know, in America, you're, to, you're possibly returning to this, well, it's not. It's not going to be. It's not. It's definitely not being cured in the long term because obviously the structural things are still bubbling under way under the surface. But you know, in America, you've got almost like a potentially a return to progressive neoliberalism and the Biden UK. You know, the permanent Tory majority. Johnson sort of yeah seems to have like an unassailable lead. If you, as you say, he's got he's sort of succeeding in creating a more coherent ruling class and would then catalyze Brexit. You know, are we coming out of this then? If you look look at, I guess. Classically, the ways to cure, like for example, the tendency of the rate of property for what one's find new markets, war, and what's the other one too is to obviously ramp up exploitation. To, mm-hmm. And obviously, one of the things that's going to come out of Brexit is a tax on workers' rights. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think I, I can sort of put, foresee things like, you know, tax on the minimum wage, almost like, you know, are we entering ruling classes becoming more, a bit more coherent? Does that suggest that we are coming out of the crisis and it's just going to be this new normal for a bit? I think we're. I think we're probably. So it depends on which crisis. Um, yeah, yeah. Like the, there's obviously a global crisis of capitalism yeah. you know, on the national, on the national and domestic scale, maybe. Yeah, but there's all it, national and domestic, but there's also sort of overlapping forms of crisis. So um, Isvan Mazeros, who's a um, fantastic sort of um, Hungarian uh, Marxist, and passed away a few years ago, but he he draws useful distinction between structural crisis and conjunctural crisis. You know what I mean? So there's the there's the sort of deep seated crisis that's really reshaping things, and then there's the immediate light and flashes of things so like yeah, okay. um, the current yeah, yeah. brought in by covid so even if covid hadn't happened we were already heading into mm. the next dip uh as part of the deeper structural crisis it's interesting because it was one of the questions um that a lot of people have been asking and considering so obviously the period that we call the golden age of capitalism post-world war ii was made possible only because of two world wars and the mm. depression and all the destruction of capital that took place at that point in time and freed up that space as you said um and that's when we had for that very brief moment that compromise between labor and capital but even then only in a tiny corner of the world only in um western europe north america and australia and japan for example I think interestingly with COVID, it might provide a mini version of the sort of um, Mm. oiling of the gears that wars have done in the past. So there's going to be thousands of businesses uh, pushed under now, you know, thousands of restaurants, cafes, pubs, uh, factories, manufacturing, various things. There's going to be mass unemployment for the next year or so, uh, at least, um, depending on what happens. Um, but there's been then a reorganization of of sort of how certain things are done. So the, the, the role that Amazon has played during the lockdown won't vanish post-lockdown. And this has sort of transformed how people uh, shop and consume and, and do various things. So on the other side of the lockdown, as and when the vaccines are rolled out and as and when this particular public health emergency recedes, um, there'll be scope possibly for 
a, a bubble of capital accumulation. And, and, and in that sense, it's interesting. I think that by the time the next election comes around, it's quite likely that a Tory government, whether it's still Johnson or, not, or Sunak or someone else, a Tory government will quite likely be um, presiding over a mini boom in the British economy on the other side of the downturn for the next year or so, but then the next general election comes around. So I think that we'll see this being resolved through. So I think there will be substantial public uh, spending and public investment by the Conservative government, which will create jobs in construction uh, and infrastructure and in maintaining those things. There'll also be the championing of certain industries and sort of the government uh, you know, building up national uh, leaders and national champions in that context. It's really hard to say what's going to happen in a global context. You know, it, it is really difficult to judge because um, so much is in flux right now. But I think, yeah, I think we're looking at the next two or three years of a fairly coherent ruling class uh, launching an assault on uh, working conditions, launching an assault on public services, again, in, in sort of various ways, while also advancing a project of right-wing Keynesianism, which will create interesting um, social blocks of support for it. I mean, it's one of those things, you look at people rightly sort of lampoon Keir Starmer for being utterly useless but when one of the things is for the last year the government has paid the wages of 40% of the workforce in the country you know and that's going to build you up a bit of support <laughs> even if you're messing everything else up you I mean that creates a certain sort of relationship and a, a certain and they also they've done other things um you know in terms of propaganda terms they've done other things well I mean they've seen they've been seen to do other things well getting Brexit done you know the deal is, is a poor deal but it's the end of all that uncertainty and Johnson has achieved the thing that he said he'd do that nobody else was seemingly able to do so you know he's done certain other things well and you're right that we're definitely we're a lot I mean after the last election the Fabian Society published a report uh, on the swing that would be necessary for Labour to gain power at the next election and I think it was 140 seats or something that's unheard of unprecedented it's not going to happen so we're likely got a Tory government for 10 years uh, which interestingly the left campaign we wrote back in 2019 or whatever it was that if Labour backed the people's vote it would hand the next 10 years to the right and again that wasn't about prophesizing or anything like that. it was just plain as day <laughs> it was plain as day that that's what was going to happen so yeah so we're, so this again is well everything feels imminent and urgent at the moment um we're also in it for a long haul. So in terms of doing the sort of work we've talked about around building trade unions, around political education, this is the project we have to do because if we're going to stand a better chance when we're in conflict next time in, in sort of more open, direct conflict, we have to have done the serious work to get people ready for it. Because like you said, at the start of COVID, you think, oh, well, now we're going to, then we're going to bite back, but people weren't ready for it. You know, people, you know, Thatcher had won more profoundly than she ever could have realized. People had internalized this idea that this is horrible. But what can you do? <laughs> there, is, there is no alternative. And so we have to be doing the work of, of sort of giving people the confidence to demand an alternative and giving people the belief that they can be the ones that shape that alternative. And that's the real project for us going forward. We're going to talk about your political education project in, in more detail in just a sec, Paul. I wanted to just you know, obviously it's implicitly throughout what we've just said, you know, the, the sort of the death of the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for, for me, I mean, obviously, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, it probably seems like I've got, you know, a pathological hatred for the Labour Party, but, um, and I, you know, I do. Um, but, you know, it, it feels to me like, you know, we are seeing finally, you call it what you want, past ratification or whatever, like the long, slow, you know, the, the, the death of the party that should have mm -hmm. died a long time ago feels to me like this is we are maybe belatedly finally and you know seeing its death throes with 
you know, Starmer, the worst, I can't think of a worse Labour leader. I mean, he, I mean, it's sort of meant to be doing a Blair impression, but mm. Blair, although a war criminal, was obviously an incredibly effective politician. You know, mm. it's just genuinely useless. And obviously the, the whole strategy seems to be, you know, you say, you know, waiting for the Conservatives to what, have some civil war or be Johnson to fuck up enough that presumably Murdoch or a couple of others will say, well, actually Starmer would be a better mm-hmm. and stable fit for British capital. But I can't, as you said, that doesn't look likely now anyway. Mm-hmm. So in all the polls, Starmer is consistently down because you know they had a strategy at the start, was it? Don't oppose the government. Then don't say anything at all. Then we have a, a global pandemic and they don't change course. They don't say, oh, we don't reassess. And they, uh, you, know, indes- you know, indescribably useless man. I mean, for me, it feels as if, you know, what's going to happen, you know, the, 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 as you said, 10 years in it for the long haul, the UK will hopefully break up and Scotland will become independent. It feels to me, especially with the, the ongoing, well, gerrymandering or they call it the, the, the new electoral makeup, the maps and stuff, Labour is finished, sure. Mm-hmm. Surely now. I mean, I think they're going to lose a lot of seats in Wales, but I do think that this is finally the, the death of Labourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's being kept alive by some people, but uh, for me, it feels as if you know, as a political project, it's probably important to have so to, to keep socialists, you know, a cadre of socialists in the Labour Party. But elect, you know, they're not. It's, I don't see how it can come from this. Um, can I just add as well to Dan's point? Like, where do you see, say, you know, you mentioned all the uh, socialists in the Labour Party. Like, where do you see the people who left over from the Corbyn project go now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I think so Labour is an interesting thing, obviously. I mean, it's it, it's interesting. I'm sort of old enough that like, the idea of being in the Labour Party was always complete and happened to me. You know, and I, yeah. I sort of grew up in the late 80s, then into the 90s. So really, Blair was my sort of forced Labour leader. You know what I mean? Uh, so that obviously sort of sealed my view of what Labour is and what it's about. Um, but then the thing is, is that when when the Corbyn moment happened, I think it was absolutely right that socialists supported Labour and campaigned for Labour and campaigned for what that opportunity was. The key thing was to do it without illusions and to do it while doing other work outside it, uh, the other work of building cater organisation, the work of political education, the work of trade unions. And the problem is, is that that other work didn't happen. Um, it didn't happen to the degree that it needed to happen. Um, the obvious sort of uh, indication of this is that while the Labour Party reached half a million members, trade union militancy was more or less non-existent. There were some small blips, but right throughout Britain, trade unions weren't striking. Trade union membership wasn't on the increase. Again, it's increased in the last year, but it wasn't on the increase. Thing with Labour is that I, unfortunately, I think it'll limp on for a lot longer than it should. Um, I think it will carry on zombie-like for the next while, in, in large part because of the electoral system in Britain, because of the uh, force past the post uh, system, um, but also because there's still the material basis for Labour and for Labourism uh, in that 30 to 35% of the English electorate and parts of Scotland and Wales that will always vote Labour for historical reasons or for you know particular ideological reasons that will always stick in there and vote for Labour, whoever the leader is in certain respects. Um, so I think that Labour will limp on. Uh, they won't be in government um, in the next 10 years. Um, the thing with Starmer, and I think, I think the people around Starmer are smart enough to know they're not going to win the next election. And I think that I don't know about him individually, but certainly the people around him and the people that support him from the broad Labour right and the Blairite tradition and so forth, they understand that his leadership of the Labour Party isn't about winning elections. 
it's about reclaiming the Labour Party uh, and it's about restoring the Labour Party's image as a sort of acceptable B-team for the management of the interests of British capital. And in that sense, it's going to be successful. You know, the, the, the Labour left has been pitiful uh, in response to everything Starmer has done since he's come in. The so-called um, socialist campaign group has been absolutely toothless and, and useless. So almost certain Corbyn won't have the whip restored, um, which is interesting um, and will be interesting for people to think about when if he's still around and if he still wants to stand at the next general election, if he can't stand as a Labour Party member, that would be interesting. Um, so electorally, Labour will limp on. It will always play a role. It will control councils in certain areas. It will elect a certain number of MPs to Westminster uh, every cycle. Labourism uh, is the bigger problem uh, in certain respects because Labourism can persist even outside Labour. You know I mean, there are people who aren't in Labour who are still Labourist in terms of their politics, which is this sort of commitment to a sort of um, anti-intellectual, pragmatic, uh, reformist politics, uh, which again characterises not just the Labour Party, but also British trade unions uh, and has done for the last hundred years. Uh, Theodore Rothstein has a great book called From Chartism to Labourism, um, which is about basically the decline of the British working class, <laughs> pretty much how it's all been downhill since 1848, uh, for, <laughs> for all but that Labourism is basically born of the defeat of working class radicalism, you know, the, the, yeah. the Labour Party and Labourism is the co-optation of working class militancy and the domestication of it by the webs who, you know, founded the Fabians and, and were instrumental and set up the Labour Party and so forth. So I think that Labour will pers persist. Um, it'll be a non-entity of a force in terms of challenging whichever Conservative government is in there. You can see that it's gradually accommodating or, or taking on board aspects of what would be the Blue Labour uh, programme, so sort of flag, country, family type stuff. Um, yeah. And they'll increasingly do that because the cynical idea is that this is what people in the red wall will want. You know what I mean? The, the sort of ikes up in the north of England, um, <laughs> the bit of racism and a bit of nationalism, and then they'll vote for us again. That's that, It's as simple as that and as cynical as that. And they'll try and pursue that, and that will make their politics increasingly more irrelevant. Uh, in terms of the people that are brought in by the Corbyn sort of moment, and I think that's an interesting thing. Like, Starmer got criticised for referring to the Black Lives Matter moment, which I don't think was a bad thing at all. I think people got caught up in it because as a historical classification of what it is, it is a moment. Do you know what I mean? It is, and a moment can last 10 years. You know? <laughs> and so the, the Corbyn moment lasted a few years. Now, the problem with it is, is that Corbynism was too enmeshed in the Labourist tradition. It was too focused on elections, both internally and externally. Uh, Corbyn and McDonald and the people around them never grasped the nettle of making any serious changes to Labour's internal uh, constitutional organisation. They never really tried to mobilise membership uh, either within the party or externally. They never tried to build any serious, even though Corbyn himself and McDonald's is good lesser extent, came from social movements and the extra parliamentary organisations. They never tried to support that and, and nurture that during the moment. The focus was just on elections and, and sort of break the debate and so forth. Now it's interesting since Starworth come in, it's hard to get the exact numbers, but at least 50,000, and I wouldn't be surprised if closer to 100,000 people have left the Labour Party. Um, some of these will drift off and do nothing. Some of them have gone to, unfortunately, this sort of George Galloway-led uh, project, um, which is which should be a good idea, but it's actually, from what I've seen of it, it's just sort of a vanity project built around one particular individual. And I watched one um, public talk that he gave about what socialism is, 
and it was basically when the state gives you stuff. So that was um, terrifying. So so yeah. it doesn't. It looks like a dead end, but unfortunately, it's a dead end that a lot of decent people will put a lot of time and money and effort into for the next couple of years. Um, there are some people who who will have taken key lessons from the Corbyn experience, and we'll go into whether it's Acorn, whether it's uh, trade unions, and we'll engage in important work there. Um, but it'll be diffuse and sort of atomized and fragmented, and that's the way it is at the moment. And then there's a section that will stay in labor, obviously. Um, there'll be some genuine people who think that they have to sort of dig deep and wait for the next Corbyn, and then they'll do it better next time. Um, there'll be others who are, you know, in, in materially invested in their own sort of prospects within the Labour Party and the prospects of a career that that presents and so forth, and they'll stick around and do it. And so I think Labour will limp on and the Labour left will continue to do what it has done for most of its existence, which is to sort of help perpetuate a party that doesn't deserve to exist any longer. Now, outside Labour is where the action is. Uh, not not the existing group so much. There's obviously the, and I don't use this in a, in a derogatory sense, I'm using this more in a descriptive sense, there's the existing left sects, which have been around for years, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll keep doing what they, what they have done. They'll try and mop up some of the people that have left Labour and, and sort of um, you know, they'll carry on in that sense. But the challenge for us, again, we've um, sound like a broken record, is what you mentioned earlier and what I've sort of been working on is to do the work of building community, working class community organisation, militant grassroots trade unionism and serious political education and linking all of those things up. And the reasons for that is that not for some sort of uh, idealised vision of extra parliamentary politics, but rather for a specific understanding of the nature of politics and an understanding that uh, if you're going to have any sort of potential movement in a serious sense in the electoral terrain, you have to first build a social base for it. And the social base is built through doing this community organising, trade union work and political education. And then there might be the prospects for uh, either through labour, but I don't think so. Most likely through an alternative vehicle uh, or political instrument, they use the expression they use in Bolivia uh, to sort of advance some sort of electoral platform. But first and foremost, it's important to build that strong social base of independent working class organisations. So I think that's where the real work is. Um, and again, that's sort of, on the one hand, unexciting because it's not the type of stuff that will, um, you know, that will sort of garner uh, tweets or, or sort of social media profile or whatever else. But it's the essential and necessary work. Um, I've been discussing with a couple of people recently, again, time and again, the recent example of Bolivia. And if you contrast uh, what happened in Bolivia in the last year and a half with what happened, let's say, to the British left or even to the US left or the Greek left or whatever you want to look at in Bolivia, and I'm sure you both know, and anybody listening knows the history of Latin America, of the US government overthrowing left wing governments and introducing sort of right wing dictatorships. And so the government of Morales was overthrown by a right wing coup. Uh, dozens of trade unionists and socialists were murdered. Morales was forced to flee. But less than a year later, the movement came back stronger. Now, the reasons for that is that long before the MAS existed as a political instrument, they'd built social movements, the cocoa growers the anti-water charges movement, the trade unionists in various other sectors, the indigenous community, which were central to it in, in the Bolivian context. So that when they lost the leader, when, when Morales was expelled and forced out, that wasn't the end of the movement. They were strong. They, they were rooted in working class communities. They were organized, they were coordinated, they were coherent, and they bounced back. Now contrast that with Labour, for example, where you have a decent, honest, sort of left-wing leader in the form of Corbyn offering, you know, a nice, modest form of social democracy. He's got the support of most of the members. 
And in the blink of an eye, the majority of the membership votes for Keir Starmer. The majority of the membership in the NEC elections, not the majority, but the highest number of votes in the NEC election goes to a rapidly right-wing Zionist supporting individual. You know, it's the same party, it's the same membership, but they flip like that. Uh, because they hadn't built the social base, they hadn't done the political education, and they weren't rooted in serious working-class socialist politics. So doing that work, I think, is, is the focus going forward, and that happens primarily outside Labour. Labour exists. We're going to have to engage it in different ways. Um, but I think that if you're if you're serious about socialism and developing socialism in Britain, your time is better spent well away from Labour. Is is it a worry though that those movements get co-opted by the Labour Party? I mean, I remember like with the People's Assembly that I think that started off independently and then quickly, you know, Owen Jones brought it into the Labour Party, and you know. Yeah, I think I think the thing with Labour is, is again, this is one of the problems we have in Britain is that, you know, in, in an ideal world, um, we so it's so funny if I had this discussion with people, because a lot of people I know wanted to leave Labour and, and and sort of set up a new party. And I found myself in the bizarre position, not of encouraging people to stay, because I do think that there's not much to be done in Labour, but of saying, well, there's no there's no point at the minute in forming a new party. There's no point by fiat declaring a new party. Could it just be a sect? It'd just be a hundred of us, or maybe even a thousand of us talking to each other, you know. So so there's no there's no real basis for it at the minute. Um but but the Labour Party, because of its history uh, and because of its resources, it exercises an extensive gravitational pull on the British left, on the broader British left. So even in the last four or five years, as I said, all the small sort of Trotsky and other groups and sects, even though they weren't in Labour, they were mainly talking about Labour. <laughs> they, were all, they were all sort of dragged into the debates about support Corbyn, don't support Corbyn, what position should Labour take on Brexit, what position should it not? And they weren't doing political education, they weren't doing other stuff. So that is a challenge, but it's something that has to just be confronted head on. I mean, one of the key things, sorry. Oh no, I was going to say, I can kind of see that happening now, you know, everyone, you know, saying, uh, how bad Starmer is, especially on, like, say, yeah. the the Corbyn left. But yeah. you know full well, yeah. you know, in next and uh, next time um, there's an election, they'll start being like, "Listen, we need to vote Labour to get the Tories out." Yeah. You know, like just start the cycle again, pretty much. Yeah. Oh no, but we, I mean, it goes back to sort of what what Dan was saying about the the so called Legsit stuff, uh, where you're sort of responsible for you know everything terrible under the sun, but you're sort of very non-influential. I mean, I wish we were half as influential as it's sometimes attributed to the left-leave position. But likewise, yeah, if you don't vote for Labour, well, then you'll be the reason why kids starve next Christmas and the toys. It's nonsense. You know I mean? But also the thing with that is, is that it'd be different if it was... So if I lived in America, for example, I would have voted for Biden. You know, in, in the elections, I would have voted for Biden, mainly because it's not that important. Uh, I would have voted for Biden because I would have been like, yeah, well, we'll get him in and he's better than Trump, but we'll be doing other stuff. You know what I mean? We'll be organising in the unions. We'll be organising around Black Lives Matter or whatever it is you know what i mean so so i think that when it comes to labor um it's slightly different so for example if you built a strong enough and let's say for example in swansea or cardiff or in manchester where i am if you built a strong enough network of let's say tenants unions of mutual aid groups uh of uh, community activists and trade unions if you built a strong enough group uh, that had built up the trust and the support and the confidence amongst each other and had a proper base in the community and you had an absolutely abysmal labor council like we do have here then there'd be every reason to contest the local elections against them because you could have some impact at that level and you might do it under a, a flag of convenience at that point in time you know you might you might form a new group 
who knows um but the idea that you have to vote for labor is a complete again laborist fiction you know what i mean and it's also it's the, it's the part of the laborist tradition to view everything in terms of elections you know what i mean even even when decent people on the left of labor talk about community organizing or whatever it is they talk about as getting people who could be candidates for labor you know rather than thinking about as being about building confidence and in independent working class organization it always loops back into the electoral machine and that's why people who this all sort of slogan of stay and fight and labor and so forth and again if pe- people are going to stay in labor whatever any of us say you now because people have made their mind up they're, they're they're big enough and they're ugly enough to understand what the world is around them they know what they're doing you know some of them might genuinely believe they can fight and change things there's been no evidence of that so far you know the couple of clps that have passed motions of no confidence in evans and so forth are i think it's about 10 percent of the overall national clps and it has absolutely no impact because corbyn and mcdonald and that failed to actually change the internal structures of the labor party so the plp just laughs all that off and and carries on the idea of staying in labor and then doing all the other stuff so that's that's sometimes the argument that's floated where you can just stay in labor and be a sort of paper member but actually you know go and do the community organizing but the reality is if anybody takes a step back and is honest with themselves and self-critical about it they don't do that when you stay in labor you get pulled into time and time again the next nec election the next committee election the next local election the next year it's a never-ending cycle and again that's not about individual failings that's about the sort of structural uh, forces at play in that particular form of politics and that's about how you understand socialism if you understand socialism as getting a labor government or getting a labor council then it makes sense you get pulled into that if you understand it instead as building up independent working class power and that's incidental, you know what I mean? It's, and but again, go back to your, your question is important because it is a recurring problem for all of us. You have to do it, you have to do it with eyes completely open and completely aware of the challenges that labor pose and how labor is then a barrier to building independent working class organization, but you still have to do that. As you say, Paul, one of the most pernicious things for me is about laborism is, is the particular way they view, as you said, doing politics is, is you know you get people, you know, well-meaning people who get sucked in procedures of CLP meetings, uh, said NEC elections and, and all that nonsense. And as you say, there was this weird period, I think, of uh, self you know reflection. At, you know, in two thousand nineteen, when Corbyn lost, I think a lot you know a lot of people in the Labour Party, the left of the Labour Party, did say like, "Oh shit, you know, we're not rooted in communities at all." But then. You know, for the last year, they've done absolutely nothing. Okay, we've had a pandemic, but, you know, far less even like in the American left. You know, it's just been a year of mourning about Corbyn, getting sucked into this weird Labour Party scenery of proceduralism and so on and so forth. And as you said, there's been no real serious attempt to do any of the things that were identified as serious deficiencies. People don't stay in the Labour Party and do community organised political education. As you said, it, it, it is one or the other. But it just tell us briefly then, Paul, about, about Beehive political education project because i do think this is you know there's something we've been trying on a small scale in wales yeah and it's obviously extremely important what's been happening what are the plans very briefly so briefly i mean one thing is that so i've been over here now um 11 years nearly 12 years uh, and, and so one of the things that struck me especially around brexit and everything else was um was the complete lack of understanding uh, by many on the left actively engaged politically of 
basic concepts of the Marxist and socialist left, an understanding of the nature of class, an understanding of the nature of state power, an understanding of capitalist crisis, of various different things. So with the left campaign, part of that was an attempt at political education. It was an attempt at trying to raise the level of analysis and discussion and move it away from where you will leave, where you remain, and to actually set out the sort of arguments around And again, as I said, we left it too late. When the crisis started, uh, and obviously it started on the back of the Labour election defeat and so forth. Lots of people had left Labour and so forth. And so people that I knew who were good working class activists, um, including form, one, one of the former Labour MP and so forth, um, wanted to do political education, were interested in doing political education. And with the lockdown, there was the sort of time and the space to do it. Um, so for the last year, we've been meeting every uh, for a time every week but usually every two weeks and we pick a different topic and again it's led by the group it's a very much a sort of frarian pedagogical approach we we approach it from the idea of this whole project is not just about some one person imparting information to other people it's a collective effort uh, gaining understanding of various issues so we've covered everything from you know political economy to the nature of ideology historical materialism the nature of state power trade unionism uh, gender race you know we've covered we've covered everything under the sun it's gone really well for the best part of a year we've maintained meetings with um between 15 and 20 plus people you know it's, it's been consistent it's been it's good it's branched off some other people that some people that are involved in it have now set up political education groups within their union branches which are which are grown but we're also now trying to um with a group that i'm involved with called the political education project we're looking to generalize this even more we're looking to move it beyond what we've done in manchester and build up a national and in due course hopefully an international campaign around political education so we were linked up with trademark in belfast and with uh, people from the democracy collaborative and we're hoping to get the support of some of the trade unions we're basically going through and saying there are much better things you can be doing with your resources and political education is key to it so hopefully we can do that but the basic idea will be uh, initially because of covid because of the lockdown it'll initially be online resources and online interaction uh, so we're going to roll out a program of of sort of socialist sunday schools uh, over the next few months where we'll go through topics every two weeks a new topic we'll circulate readings to people we'll have online discussions and um, it'll be a bit of learning by doing as well because again there's nothing like this at the moment um but it's absolutely a same I mean, you boys are from from wales you know what i mean again the sort of the, the the miners libraries that were dotted all across wales during the early 20th century and the crucial role that played in building up working class self-confidence working class intellectuals and, and the sort of particular radical politics that comes out of wales likewise all across britain there was you know workers institutes and so forth and it's all gone into decline over the last 40 years as part of this defeat we were talking about so that's what we're focusing on and again the point of this and we've had this conversation amongst the the comrades who were involved in it is that this is sort of the the old mold of history you know i mean we're sort of burrowing on the ground now to do the necessary sort of foundational work so that whatever happens in future we will hopefully have contributed to uh, building up cater of confident uh, better educated working class activists who can engage whether it's in the trade unions community campaigns and link it up in a more coherent way um yeah so it's going well so far and uh, you know I'll, I'll send more information around about it soon but it's a political education project you can find it on twitter you can find the beehive on twitter as well i don't remember what the handles are for either of them but i'm sure if you search it but yeah so i think that i think it's crucial i think that's crucial for what we're doing now because again and as far as I'm concerned, the Labour Party is a dead end. You know, I mean, we're, we're, all, we're all doing our own trade union work and we keep doing that. Uh, but the political education is absolutely crucial. Absolutely fantastic. Um, Paul O'Connell, uh, 
it's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, like, really, really grateful for you to come on. It's super, super educational and insightful. Um, have you on again very soon to talk about you know Marxism, the state, and, and so on? Uh, Paul, do you have any um, any shout outs, any beefs? But also, do you have any New Year's resolutions that you would like uh, to to, to, t- to tell our listeners to do? Yeah. It's better to have people impose resolutions on you, I think. Yeah, New Year's resolutions. There's a, so if, if you haven't read much Hal Draper before, go and read Hal Draper. Go and read The Two Souls of Socialism. Read Hal Draper on sects and on socialist organisation. One of the lines he has in there uh, is precisely about some of the stuff we've been talking about, where he says that if you're not in a party, that's okay. Uh, if you're doing uh, a bit of work in your local community and in your workplace and you're advancing ideas on a daily basis, then you're helping to move things forward. Now, ultimately, in due course, we are going to have to confront the organisational question before that's a whole lot of other muck we have to clear away we have to get away from this sort of narcissistic culture of left media personality we have to get away from a focus on reformist politics and electoralism we have to build up sites of independent working class organization and education and communication um but yeah you can do that don't worry about uh, being in an organization or being in the vanguard party we can get there in due course just do what you can where you are top man paul um nathan got any shout outs yeah, a few shout outs. I'm going to give a shout out to the series Mr. Robot, which I uh, smashed over the Christmas <laughs> break. It's absolutely incredible, to be fair. I was a bit skeptical at first. But I was like, oh, it's found an uh, insurrectionary anarchist hacker taking down uh, the like um, top 1%. So that's really good. I also, um, big shout out to MF Doom, who died what we thought was. Uh, New Year's Eve, but he actually died on uh, the 31st of October. But uh, yeah, absolute, like, incredible. Um, and uh, National Campaign Muslim. to have that renamed Doomsday from now on. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Doomsday slash Halloween. Oh, I, it's funny enough because in lockdown as well, I was like, oh, I started listening to, you know, like Operation Doomsday and um, uh, Victor Vaughn and all his, and um, King Ghidorah. And it's just so, like, in the space of like two, was it from 2002 to 2004 or something? Just so prolific. Like he, he had Mad Villain, mm, food. Yeah, but, but uh, next, next level stuff as well. I mean, like, there's nothing. It's why he wasn't as popular in the charts and that because it's just on a different level to that type. It's, of stuff. it's timeless as well. Like I was listening to mm, mm, food and you couldn't couldn't believe it, it was like 2004, yeah. I think. Yeah, Mad yeah. what happened with him uh, with KMD. Yeah. So his his brother died. He got run over and then his label dropped him soon after and then he comes back. I think he depression it for like five yeah. years and then came back with like a metal like a mask yeah. and a yeah. like a golf sweat uh, yeah. golf jumper like <laughs> so good so big shout out to MF Doom yeah um, shout out to me oh yeah shout out to Jasmine I guess Jasmine introduced uh, our friend Jasmine surely introduced Paul and I um, so oh yeah Jasmine hello yeah, let's give her a wave in, in snowy um, Canada yeah totally grateful hey. for that but yeah shout, I guess shout out to to everyone who, who listens and tunes in. Um, and please stay listening. Follow us on Twitter at Destination Wales. Subscribe uh, to our Patreon. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, honestly, Paul, thanks so much again, mate. It's been a uh, experience. Thank you, Thank you uh, very much. Finally, hear your dulcet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm holding on to me accent yeah. for, for dear life. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in person. But yeah, thanks so much again. And yeah, I said, look out for the beehive. And you know, we'll, we'll be releasing you know, some of Paul's work and, and, and writings over the course of promoting this episode but thanks so much again thanks so much take care all right cheers paul i know you're not yelling like before which is good but i can tell you're still holding on to it 
And we need to work on your anger issues, Elliot. You're angry at everyone, at society. Fuck society. I know you have a lot to be angry about, but keeping it to yourself and staying quiet like you're doing, it's not going to help you. There's pain underneath. That's where our work needs to go. What is it about society that disappoints you so much? Oh, I don't know. Is it that we collectively thought Steve Jobs was a great man, even when we knew he made billions off the backs of children? Or maybe it's that it feels like all our heroes are counterfeit. The world itself's just one big hoax. Spamming each other with our running commentary bullshit, masquerading as insight. Our social media faking as intimacy. Or is it that we voted for this? Not with our rigged elections, but with our things, our property, our money. I'm not saying anything new, we all know why we do this. Not because Hunger Games books makes us happy, but because we want to be sedated. Because it's painful not to pretend. Because we're cowards. Fuck society. Elliot, you're not saying anything. What's wrong? Nothing. 